Previously on Healed. In Chuck's case, we were assigned Judge Richard T. Andreas. There is no more fair judge sitting back then in the 90s. Lynn Jones was pretty verbal to the press about the Donald and Marla, saying she's destroyed one American family and she's trying to destroy another. Now Jones's wife is speaking out. She told the New York Post that Maples and Donald Trump are publicity seekers, that they just want to drum up interest for Marla's Broadway opening. Chuck caught my eye and, he's, and he just said, it's nice to finally meet you. I know that you're just doing your job. What is he, the head of the banana crime family? This is vacillating between delusions of grandeur of who he is in the world or a thinly veiled threat. Chuck Jones drops a motion to dismiss bombshell. Maple submitted an affidavit supporting the dismissal of the charges against Jones. It was a shock. No witness, no case. If Marla wasn't going to come forward, we were going to have problems. Chuck right now has got the Manhattan DA's office and the Trump Marla camp by the balls. Then Chuck sues for $700 million. Chuck overreached and that was poor strategy. You do not mess with the Manhattan DA's office. He's playing a very dangerous game of chicken. And how did Chuck take all that? He had a heart attack. I'm your host, Trisha LaFach, and this is Healed, the curious case of Marla Trump's shoes. And we're back. Yeah, here we are. Just wanted to check in with you again. How are you feeling about this trip down memory lane? <laughs> How am I feeling? How are you feeling about this thing? It's your idea. Me? Yeah. It's interesting. I have to say I spent a lot of the week actually thinking about Lynn Jones. Mm -hmm. And I do stand by what I said last week that were I in her shoes, I would have done the same thing that she did and, you know, publicly stand by and support my husband. Um, and, you know, with, I think I trust my fiance as much as I, as a person, am humanly capable of trusting another human. But I think that's because he's never given me reason not to. So I think what I was thinking about with Lynn is, you know, this whole thing it didn't happen in a vacuum, right? Mm -hmm. Because for seven years or six and a half by the time this happened, Chuck was representing Marla. And, you know, I have no idea how long Lynn and Chuck had been married, but we do know that at the time they had two children and the oldest was 13. So they, I'm saying at least half of their marriage, right? It's Marla this and Marla that and Marla needs me and Marla's upset or Marla's career, you know? And I think that that's got to take a toll on a marriage, especially when you know that it's for your partner's work, right? He always mm -hmm. has the excuse, even if you suspect or feel like there's some something a little inappropriate or whatever there, you know, he can always go back on, it's, it's my work, Lynn, I have to go, right? Right. What happens when your partner is experiencing something that you can't really describe or maybe you do know? And I, I, I came up with three scenarios. Okay. Okay. So the first scenario is that the wife has no idea about this, in this case, shoe fetish, right? The partner doesn't know they're complete in the dark, which I find hard to believe. Second scenario is she was perfectly fine with it, which is also kind of unlikely. And the third, and what is most fascinating to me about Lynn and this situation is that the partner suspects that something is going on, has seen some signs that something is going on, and maybe they know more than they're willing to admit, but they allow their brain, right, to trick themselves into believing that nothing's going on. And I think that the reason why it fascinates me so much is about how powerful our minds are, right? Because if we want to believe something, we just convince ourselves that it's true, specifically when we're talking about somebody that, you know, we love. After thinking about that a lot, I felt that it makes even more sense that Lynn would be really upset with Marla based on Chuck and Marla's history and possibly maybe her own subconscious feelings of guilt or culpability for not being able to get her husband help sooner before it blew up into a situation like this. I mean, that being said, I'm not at all blaming Lynn because she could quite possibly could have tried to uh, get Chuck to get some help. Uh, but I'm interested because I feel that she's a victim as well. The thing I liked about Lynn or the way I looked at it was that her husband did something. She was pissed. She didn't show up with the bail money on time, right? Had him cool his heels. And then, you know, push comes to shove. She stands up, right? Yeah. 
that's old school shit. I get it. Like yeah. I, I kind of, I dig her position on that. Her husband was going through something and she stood up. So I, that's the way I looked at it. That, that all that other stuff that you were talking about. I, I, I love hearing that from you. I think you've changed a little bit over that. Well, no, I mean, listen, I said things and then I went home and I thought about them and I was, I thought, you know, I'm not in her situation. And I, I just found a lot of empathy for her over the week, sitting back on it and reflecting on it. I think that's really good. And, and, and to have, in, you know, introspection, if that's the word, or, you know, being able to think about what we've talked about over the week. And here we are back again. So here we are uh, back let's, again. Let's, uh, let's entertain. Let's entertain. Here we are, and Chuck has been indicted and arraigned on the indictment. Mm-hmm. And the Honorable Richard T. Andreas has been assigned and Chuck makes a motion to dismiss in the interest of justice with Marla's affidavit attached in support. Yeah, that, that affidavit was that was rough. And then he went a little bit litigation crazy in July, right? We talked Starts about that. Start suing everybody. Yep. And then finally, mm-hmm. while nursing a Heineken at Luke's Bar and Grill in the Upper East Side, Chuck- Has a heart attack. Has a heart attack. Chuck has a heart attack mid-lunch while dining with his defense attorney, Sal Alosco, and Marla's manager, Richard Fields. This happens at yet another negotiation session with his lawyer and a Trump official. There was probably some negotiation going on outside of my purview. Yes, I was not there. And Chuck had a heart attack. Chuck had a heart attack. Extended stress test gives Jones a mild heart attack. Quote, it was not Ajita that kept beleaguered publicist Chuck Jones from attending his hearing in Manhattan Supreme Court yesterday. It was a mild heart attack that caused him to collapse halfway through his Heineken at Luke's restaurant while attorney Sal Alosco and Marla Maple's manager, Richard Fields, looked on. But Chuck fell to the floor and was out for 20 minutes. He was rushed to Lenox Hill Hospital, but checked himself out 20 minutes later. Wow. There's a lot to unpack here. First of all, I love that the Daily News writer uses one of our favorite words, mm-hmm. Ajita. Ajita. Very good use of Ajita. You don't hear Ajita much on the West Coast. Nope. No, you do not, but it is a fan fave. I also love that they say that they're tired of hearing about the case when they're the ones reporting on the case. They're loving every second of this case. Chuck Jones may be stressed out over this whole thing, but he sure isn't letting it affect his social life. First, he's at Elizabeth Taylor's charity event with his client LaToya Jackson, rubbing elbows with Ivana Trump. Then he's at Mickey Mantle's restaurant's five-year anniversary party and afterwards spotted at the now-closed but iconic New York City hotspot Elaine's. Mm-hmm. Did you ever go there? No, no, I've never been Never there. made it up? Nah. Um, did you get a nosebleed above 21st Street? Yeah, you know, look, <laughs> Elaine's was a place where, where the celebrities hung out. I was never a celebrity. Now he's having a heart attack at Luke's Bar and Grill on the Upper East Side that had just opened in 1991. Plus, come on. This this heart attack is giving me serious Sopranos vibes. Uh, <laughs> it, it, when Tony and Janice and Bobby plot with Uncle June to make it look like he's got dementia in order to try to get him a mistrial because he's hoping that if he gets the mistrial, the prosecution is not going to retry him for the crimes. They they you know they practice his answers and what he would know and what he wouldn't know. And yeah, yeah. I love The Sopranos, right? You know that. It's my favorite TV show uh, of all time. And one of the reasons Same. I'm in the business because I watched The Sopranos and, and wanted to write. Said, I could do that. That that episode itself is it's fantastic. Well, yes, but it's stolen from real life, right? right? Genovese crime boss, you know, Vincent de Chin Gigante, you know, walked around the village, you know, for years in a bathrobe, you know, <laughs> drooling on himself, making believe that he was fucking out of his mind, right? When he wasn't, right? He ended up dying in jail. Do I think that Chuck faked the heart attack? I do not. Right. I do think he was under a great deal of stress. Do you think he was milking it though? Look, you know, how do you milk a heart attack? How do you milk a heart attack? Right. I mean, you know, the fact that he checked himself out of Lennox after 20 minutes, I mean, look, it's definitely suspect. But, you know, there is no doubt he was under a great deal of stress. Yeah, that's also, by the way, the episode where Ralphie burns Pyomai and then Tony whacks him in the kitchen. Yeah. Uh, anyways, as a result of Chuck's heart attack, the hearing on the matter is held, but Judge Andreas decides to not rule on the motion to dismiss in Chuck's absence. So, no. 
the postponement of the ruling, can you describe how that affected the mood in your office? We wanted very much this not to be dismissed on an interest of justice grounds because we didn't think it was the right call. I mean, Andrews did the right thing. The defendant's not in court. You're not going to make that major ruling there. I, mean, I felt like we we knew we were going to win that ruling. Right? Okay. We, we knew. So that you weren't was, sweating it out? No, nah, no. Nah, at that point, this is the way it works, right? You got a judge and you got a law clerk, right? Yeah. The judge is not supposed to talk to you about and tell you what's going on. Law clerk can give you a wink a and a gossip. nod. A little wink and a nod, yeah. right? So, you like, when I, you know, I was in court. I was like, hey, how we looking here? You know, I, was yeah. like, I got the wink and nod. <laughs> okay. So we were okay. I was right. not sweating. The article that I was referring to goes on to say that this is the third time that Chuck has passed out, which his attorney, Sal Alasco, blames on the pressure from the state to settle the case. You're getting blamed for the heart attack. I mean, that's, that's his job as a defense attorney, right? Blame the prosecutor. The most amazing revelation in this article just might be that despite all this, Chuck is quoted as insisting that even amidst all this brouhaha and angina, Chuck insisted that he and Marla had recently walked hand in hand down Fifth Avenue, joking about the thought of Donald Trump attending the Moz classes. Yeah, I'm. Uh, one of two things is happening, right? Yeah. Chuck is becoming so unglued that he's making stuff up and believing it. Right. Or I'm getting played, right? right. Because if Marla's walking down Fifth Avenue with Chuck talking Pee-peeing. about, ah, I mean, come on, I'm, I mean, we're done, right? We're <laughs> finished. I mean, it, this is a situation where we. We knew that we were going to have to go forward with the case. And the last thing you want is a victim who's a lunatic, right? I was pretty sure she wasn't a lunatic. I, I was pretty sure that Chuck was a lunatic. So, you yeah. You thought this was a lie. Yeah, come on. That didn't happen, right? right? They're not but he believed down. it. Like I said, I know a lot of pathological liars, and they think that they're telling the truth. Yeah, of course. I, mean, I don't know if Chuck was, but. Listen, I mean, we've all is. been in situations where we can believe the bullshit that we are telling ourselves. Sure, but. You know, I think this is this is a guy who's telling reporters, me and Marlo are walking down the street holding hands talking about Lamaze classes. I'm just happy that it did not turn out to be true. Yes, but you did feel slightly like maybe we are through the looking glass here at this point. If that was true, I was screwed. Right. Chuck Marla ad nauseum. Chuck suffers another defeat or er, defeat in court. Good one, huh? I love that headline. On September 20th, 1993, Justice Richard Andreas ruled that the motion be denied. Yeah, we won that one. That was, that was a good one. Good for us. Andreas, in my view, ruled correctly, right? He basically looked at two grounds. One is that the evidence against Chuck was substantial, right? We had the videotape. We had the victim saying he wasn't allowed to be in there. We had the shoes. We had the guns. We had all that stuff. So substantial evidence against him. Yeah. Secondly, he also went on to say that in addition, the behavior involved not only criminal acts, but also a serious breach of trust, right? That Marla's trust was breached by Chuck because they had this friendship, working relationship, and the fact that he stole her stuff was a breach of trust. And so therefore not the type of case you would want to dismiss in the interest of justice. Yes, the language that he used, he said it was a pernicious invasion of Miss Maple's privacy. Yeah, he was Am a wordsmith. Right? I pernicious. don't know. He's a wordsmith, that Andreas guy. The article adds, well, what about a healthy degree of kinkiness? Well, <laughs> Daily News... Kinkiness is not, in fact, illegal. Yeah, and and Judge Andrews wasn't going to bring that up. Right. I say bump up the kinkiness. In rejecting Chuck's motion, Andreas disagreed with the defense's argument that Jones had already suffered enough public humiliation. Nobody was hurt, and that Jones's actions were the result of a compulsive disorder that borders on an irresistible impulse. Any reaction to that? Nobody was hurt. That's not true. Marla was hurt, and I I think... Andreas looked at that when he when he talked about the behavior being not only criminal but also a breach of trust. And you know the the fact that it it was a result of a compulsive disorder. I mean, look, you it's know, not a defense. Well, kleptomaniacs are you know they have a compulsive disorder, right. but you know you prosecute them just the same. I think the defense's argument was instead of prosecuting the guy, let's show him some compassion and get him into some kind of court ordered counseling. Are you saying that they wanted us to offer him an adjournment in contemplation of dismissal with some health services? Yeah, we did. He didn't want it. These guys wanted to go to trial. I mean, and and look, after they lost the motion, Alasco came out as strong. Yeah. I mean, he came out as heavy. 
Alasco further alleged that District Attorney Robert M. Morgenthau had personally called Trump himself to get Marla to continue the case. Yeah, that's not true at all. Because there was a big investigation over why this case was even brought. Because at the time, Trump was friends with Morgenthau. At the time, Marla was testifying at a grand jury. Donald was having uh, lunch with Morgenthau at the Plaza Hotel. There was a lot of political pressure. That's not true. Let's remember who Robert M. Morgenthau was. Robert M. Morgenthau was called the Dean of District Attorneys, right? Okay. This is a guy who had been the DA for over 20 years. He was the District Attorney for New York County, which is Manhattan. He is the most respected District Attorney who probably ever lived. Right. right? The idea that he and Trump were somehow cooking up a plan to get Marla to prosecute Chuck is absurd. Mm -hmm. And the fact that... Alaska would make this allegation is really crossing the line. It's it's definitely a slap at us. So during the time that you prosecuted Chuck, Morgenthau's your boss. Yes. Do you have another boss in between you and Morgenthau? Yeah, I got like nine bosses. Nine bosses, between. right. Yeah. So there's there's a but so so he's the big boss and you have some other bosses ahead of you, right? Did Morgenthau ever call you to talk to you specifically about this case? Trish, I was there five years. Morgan never called me once on any case, right? I, I was sworn in by him. Even who you were? I was sworn in by Mr. Morgan Dow, and I was sworn out by Mr. Morgan Dow. Gotcha. Two times we had, you know, I would see him once in a while on the street and say, hey, boss, right? right. That's kind of it, along with 13 other assistant DAs who were saying at the same time, hey, boss. Uh, but no, he never called me on this case. Um, and my bosses never pressured me on this case. There was no like, you know, there's this idea that there was some sort of waterfall of pressure raining down from Morgenthau onto little old me, right? This was not what was happening. Certainly it was a press case. Certainly the press office was talking to me. But the, the fact that there were bosses breathing down my neck, no. As Kevin said... Robert Morgenthau was one of the most respected district attorneys basically ever. He started his civil service career as a U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York in Manhattan, appointed by President John F. Kennedy, and was forced out of office because of political pressure by the Nixon administration. Morgenthau was known for doggedly pursuing white-collar crimes and his belief that prosecuting crime in the suites was just as important as prosecuting crime in the streets. He inspired a Law & Order character, which was the Manhattan District Attorney, and he died at Lenox Hill Hospital, where Chuck was treated for his heart attack just 10 days shy of his 100th birthday. Back to the motion to dismiss. So how did it feel for the office to hear that Judge Andreas denied Chuck's motion to dismiss? I think from a legal standpoint, we were very happy because it was the proper legal ruling. Personally, I mean, look, it's good news, bad news, right? right. The victory's hollow because, all right, great. What does that mean? It means we got to go forward. But it always feels good to win, doesn't it, Kev? Sure it does. But the truth of the matter is that the people of the state of New York versus Charles Jones is now heading like an out-of-control freight train towards trial. Here come the nudes. Marla? Trump? Who nude? It's another great headline. Yeah, I love that headline. So what's this all about? On November 22nd, 1993, we get this package. At the DA's office? Yeah, yeah, delivered to the DA's office, right? Okay. It shows up in my office, and uh, it's a big manila envelope, and I open it up, and inside is this, you know, this picture of Marla Maples naked. <gasps> yeah, that's... That's the first thing you see, right? And then there's an aggressive letter in there it's talking shit about Marla. But then, you know, when when you look at the the naked picture, you realize quickly that it's a mimeograph, right? A mimeo who? A mimeograph, like, um, I don't know, a, a photocopy. A photocopy. Okay, so tell me what's mimeographed on this photo. <laughs> How does this so work? So basically what it is is it's a picture of a naked woman um, who is laying on some sheets in a bed it was purported to be Marla because someone had cut out Marla's head from another picture right. and taped it over the head of this woman who was naked. And then copied the whole thing to make it look like... Look like one image of a photo, you know... Of, of a, a naked Marla. Somebody somebody did some 
look, before Photoshop, which I know is some software program that people use nowadays, before that, this was something that would happen, right? You would cut out someone's, not that I would, but people would cut out <laughs> people's heads and put them on the bodies of someone else and then copy it. And then it looks like a picture, but it was not that. It I've wasn't seen those letters, like the ransom letters where they cut each you know, letter out. Something it, like it's kind of like that, right? I guess from back in the day. So in addition to that, you know, was this letter and the letter said basically that Marla was a homewrecker. She was a terrible person and, you know, she should, you know, be humiliated. And here's a picture that humiliates her, blah, 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 blah. It also finally talked about the person who sent the package said that they also had other pictures, right? Okay. They had other pictures of Marla naked. They had pictures of Marla and Donald naked. And they had pictures of Marla and Donald and a banana. Finally, this banana. Yep. So where is it? Yeah, there's no banana picture. This is a quote from the Daily News. I'm looking at what purports to be a photocopied snapshot of Marla Maples in the nude. It came to me in the mail with a hateful letter claiming that there are other nude photos of Donald Trump, Marla Maples, and a banana. Say it with me. And a banana. A bana- <laughs> So the Daily News got the same letter? Yeah, they got the same letter. They got the same picture. And, and look, let's identify this for what it is, right? As I told you, it was not actually a picture of Marla Maples, mm-hmm. right? The Daily News knew that, but right. they didn't report that, right? They said purported. Right. They knew when they looked at that, that was not her. But again, this is the this is the press, the newspapers trying to sell papers, and I get it. So what you're commenting on is that they didn't go on to say it's clearly somebody else's body on Marla's head. I don't think that that's in the article, right? Right. So- Your first impression was it was a pretty good fake, but obviously a fake. We had been looking for the quote-unquote nude pictures for quite some time. We did search warrants. We asked Chuck's lawyers about it. We were definitely on to that. When I saw the, you know, it was early in the morning. I got the package. I looked at it. I'm like, oh, shit, here's the picture. So what did you guys do with the package? We sent it to the police department to see if we can get fingerprints off of it. Here is what Chuck Jones had to say about the whole ordeal. Quote, Chuck Jones leapt to the defense of Marla and Donald. Whatever else may be going on between us, smearing them like this is not something I condone. He mysteriously added, I'm concerned for those two. Furthermore, it's not in my best interest to have this out there. I've been trying to resolve our dispute. Dispute. So it's interesting that he talks about their dispute as if it's like some kind of contractual problem, right? Right. I mean, what we're talking about here is charged with felonies. He's been indicted on felonies. This was not some kind of dispute that you can- And he's referring to it as whatever else is going on here, Whatever else, yeah. Whatever else is you've been charged with multiple felonies in Manhattan Criminal Court. Going to jail. Chuck may not have been in the mood to smear Marla in 1993. However, years later, he would try to block her scheduled performance at Carnegie Hall. When asked why Chuck tried to cock block Marla's singing engagement, here's what he said about it. Because a lot of people who live in New York know what happened at my trial. And she's on stage coming into Carnegie Hall. Mm-hmm. I've been to Carnegie Hall. Mm-hmm. I've been there with Frank Sinatra and with uh, Benny Goodman and people like that. There were people that I, I knew who were appearing with her and their reputation. It's like a, like a protest. You were protesting it? Yeah, because they're on stage playing behind her. She's fancied herself being the singer. Probably sings Happy Birthday pretty good. It was, again, a way for me to get rid of some of these betrayal thoughts that I was betrayed. I think it's very interesting that Chuck, in attempting to discredit Marla's talent, chose happy birthday as an example. Okay, happy birthday is hard as fuck to sing, and most people butcher it. The third happy birthday has a full octave leap, meaning a seven-note jump in the musical scale. It's got a huge range. You got to be able to sing high. You got to be able to sing low and everything in between. I never, ever want anyone to sing happy birthday to me ever. First of all, I'm not the biggest fan of birthdays. Second of all, there's nothing worse than looking at a bunch of your loved ones performing terribly. It's just, it's just what happy birthday is sung off key. It's just wildly depressing. Yeah. You got some issues with this, huh? (laughs) All I can say is I think we should find out when our birthday is and send her a bunch of stuff. 
it's May 12th and everyone can feel free to send me money and gifts. Just don't go singing happy birthday in my DMs unless you are Beyonce. Back to the articles. Jones argued that the letters could have come from someone who works for Ivana's office. He went on to say, and this is my favorite part, the cops I spoke to, because he's just talking to him left and right, said that they thought a woman wrote the letter because it talks so much about Ivana and the kids. Who else would get so upset about Marla hawking maternity clothes? What do you think about that statement? I mean, look, do I think Ivana sent that letter? No. Do I think that Lynn sent that letter? No. Do I think Chuck sent the letter? Yes. Could I prove it? No. I have never faxed anything to Donald Trump or Marla Maples uh, regarding Marla Maples' nude photographs, or I've never shown... I've never shown anybody Marlon's pornographic videotape. This is more of the same bullshit, right? He picks up the phone, he calls a reporter, and he, like, throws out there these these accusations as if they're truth, right? I mean, this guy, you know, he's he's on the master manipulator side of things, right? He's trying to get his story out there. You have to remember, every day this guy woke up and said, how can I fuck with the DA's case? And that's what he did with this. Well, what do you think about him saying, the cops I talked to? He didn't speak to no cops. He's full of shit. Yeah, at this point, it's pretty clear that Chuck may, in fact, be bananas. (laughs) And finally, the article goes on to say that Trump had other concerns. According to the writer, one source believed that among the reputed nudes, there may be odalisks of the Donald. And that's his biggest nightmare, that those photos get out. What's an odalisk? Well, I will gladly tell you. An odalisk was originally what the chambermaid or female attendant in the household of the Ottoman sultan was called. The term has since evolved to reference the eroticized artistic genre in which a woman lies on her side on display for the spectator. In short, for pop culture reference, it's like when when uh, Rose says to Jack in Titanic, draw me like one of your French girls. Jack, I want you to draw me like one of your French girls. Wearing this. All right. Wearing only this. So, so the idea is that there are pictures out there of Donald J. Trump naked laying on his side? Yes. In this context, Trump is the French girl. Yeah. I, I mean, look, uh, we, we did hear that there were some naked pictures, but we'd never heard about odalisks. I can absolutely see Trump on a velvet couch, you know, on his side with all the, his belly just kind of flopped to one side, one leg up, bent, like feeding himself grapes. You're making me sick. <laughs> Her shoes were made for videotaping. In December 93, the New York Daily News announces to the world that Chuck Jones has parted with yet Another defense attorney. Pour a little out for Sal Alasco. You're fired. Because here comes Chuck's new counsel, B. Anthony Morosco. Yeah, so we got Sal Alasco. We got B. Anthony Morosco. We've got... Uh, Farringer. You know, Harold Price Farringer. I mean, these, these we got some good names here, right? This is. I think, yeah, I think Sal had one too short of a syllable in his name. Yeah, I don't know what happened. He but- needed an initial. Look, Sal Osco did a, you know, did a good job. You know, he fought hard, but, you know, it was time for a new attorney. And here comes B. Anthony Morosco. Morosco. So when you first met Morosco, do you recall that? Uh, yes, I do. Um, how do so I you, you didn't know Morosco from the streets? No, no, no. He, no, he's a Westchester guy, right? Okay. So Morosco, Morosco used to be the head of the appeals bureau in the Westchester County District Attorney's well, Office. Well, that's odd. And he had left there and then became a trial lawyer and, and had tried cases. He was a very, very smart lawyer um, on the law. Right. Um, look, my first thought when I saw him, I'm like, yo, this dude looks a little bit like Jabba the Hutt, right? Okay. I mean, he was very, very overweight. <laughs> You know the term you sweat in Alaska? Yeah. I uh, you know, he was he was a, he was a sweaty dude. He's a sweater. Hey, you cast me as the sweater. There you go. Yes, and I did. yes, I did. Yeah. My character on the show that Kevin and I met was a excessive sweater. Was was I inspired by Morosco? Yes, you were. <laughs> so the article doesn't just announce B. Anthony Morosco. Bam! Entrance into the case. He probably had that on his briefcase, right? Bam! I don't know. In gold lettering. 
it also announces that uh, B. Anthony Morosco filed a motion which was granted by, and the judge is referred to in this article as Rich Andreas. Right. Rich Andreas granted the motion for the defense to videotape Marla's apartment. Yeah, I mean, this is pretty standard stuff, right, Trish? The defense had moved, you know, to have an opportunity to inspect the crime scene. Correct. That is the scene where the crime took place. Chuck, going into that apartment without permission and authority to be there, made Marla's apartment the crime scene. Yeah. And so they asked not only to inspect it, but they wanted to videotape it. It wasn't, we we didn't oppose it, right? I mean, we we actually did not oppose that application because that's what um, we thought was the the proper thing to do. Maybe, you know, Morosco's thinking, we're going to show that because of the placement of the videotape, which we're going to get into again a little later, you would never be able to tell what was in the bag, right? Because it was just in front of the door. He dips out, he dips back. You don't know whether he's got Marla's shoes in the bag, which would be a fantastic argument if you didn't have the shoes. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think when Morosco came on the case and he made that application, it pointed out to me that this is a lawyer knew what he's doing. Because mm-hmm. it's a smart, like you said, it's a smart argument to make. I think he's also trying to justify his retainer. He's freshly into the case. And I think he's sending a message to the DA's office that this thing is headed to trial. He definitely took an aggressive stance, yes. Also, in his order to allow the defense to film Marla's apartment, Judge Rich Andreas set January 4th, 1994 as the date certain for the hearing and the trial for the People versus Jones. then chuck sues marla again yep the daily news reports that while marla was signing autographs in macy's in midtown chuck has marla served by a woman posing as a fan with a civil lawsuit claiming that marla owed chuck one hundred and eighty-seven thousand dollars in back commissions Chuck's server reportedly waited in line for her turn, and when Marla handed her the autograph, the woman said, I have something for you, too. Pulled a bait and switch, handing Marla her paperwork. As usual, Chuck had some amazing things to say about suing his former friend and client. He's first quoted in the article as saying, Marla and Donald are probably still together because of me. I kept them from killing each other. But then he insisted he was not reigning on Marla's upcoming wedding to Trump. I would have filed it on Friday, but it would have gotten in her wedding story, and I didn't want to ruin that. Getting married to Donald is one of the most positive things in her life. I mean, this guy is totally lost it. We have a date certain for trial at this point. Yes. Right? He decides, I'm going to go sue the victim for $187,000. He can't get enough of himself. He needs to be in the papers every day. He needs to say these ridiculous he's things like in the papers. I think he's obsessed, as we've talked about before. Yes. And I think at the end of the day, he is not holding on to reality very well. Right. And whether it's the pressure of the trial, whether it's the pressure of losing Marla, whether it's the pressure of not being part of the Donald Trump orbit anymore, right. all I can tell you at this point was that we were working hard to get ready for trial, and this all this noise in the background was just insanity. And I think that he has decided that this entire case, this entire city, this entire nation is waiting for the Chuck Jones trial. As if things weren't already strange enough, Chuck subpoenas Trump and Marla's prenuptial agreement. Just days after the papers report that Marla was served at Macy's, where she was signing autographs to promote the launch of her new maternity wear, Chuck strikes again. Chuck makes the bizarre comment to the Daily News that he will be subpoenaing Donald and Marla's prenuptial agreement since it will have a clause in it prohibiting Marla from ever saying anything negative about Trump. Yeah, this is one of those things that was a little bit left field for me. I mean, yes, Marla was going to be a witness at the trial, obviously, as the victim, right? Whether or not she could or would or had any reason not to say bad things about Trump in my opinion, had nothing to do with the trial, right? right? 
whether or not there was a disparaging or disparagement clause in the prenup was something that, you know, they decided. There 1,000% was. Again, I didn't see the prenup. I didn't see any non-disparagement clause. To me, it was, again, you know, this, Trish, this whole thing was a three-ring circus. And this was like ring four. Right. Some insanity going on about it. So did they file the motion? No, they never filed them. I don't know. I don't remember seeing any motion. Now, if they filed that motion, would you have opposed it? <laughs> At that point, I probably wouldn't oppose it because I was so tired of all the bullshit. My view is this. January 4th, let's go. You bring your guys, I'll bring mine. Right. Let's go. I'm done. I'm done with these B. Anthony Morascos and Salalascos and Chuck Jones every day being in the newspaper saying some sort of baloney, right? I was done. Like, let's rock and roll. Richard Fields responded to Chuck's allegations that he was going to subpoena the prenup by saying, as we get closer to Marla's wedding, he'll do everything he can to take the beauty of the day away from her. And getting closer to the day, we certainly were. Cue the Donald and Marla wedding music. It's finally happening. After a series of reports in the papers over the summer of 1993 that Trump had postponed the wedding indefinitely, but Marla had been seen running around town carrying her Carolina Herrera dress everywhere she goes, just in case, the wedding was finally set for December 20th, 1993, in the grand ballroom at Trump's Plaza Hotel, just Feet away from where, a year and a half earlier, Chuck was initially confronted about stealing Marla's shoes. You, did you just say feet away? Just feet away. It's hilarious. Finally tonight, for the media hordes panting for pictures of the married couple, this was the payoff. A kiss for the cameras. Marla all in white, wearing that $2 million tiara with 326 blue-white diamonds on loan from a local jeweler. The couple happy in wedlock. I think we never can get away from what marriage really means. And tonight we had, had the perfect ceremony that was blessed by God. So. It was a beautiful evening. It was really a beautiful evening. And people are very happy. The Trump Marlowe wedding was an event. So there was newspaper coverage of this thing. There were news channels uh, talking about breaking into their regularly scheduled programming. And in fact, some did cut into their regularly scheduled programming, which was a big deal back in the day, right? Yeah, Trisha, this was the biggest event in New York City in a couple of years. I mean, this was the ticket, right? People wanted to go to this. People wanted to know about it. Yes, they broke... One or two of the stations broke in, you know, breaking news, like Trump and Marla got married. It, it happened. Was, it was it was bizarre. So Donald and Marla, they had their wedding on a Monday night, which, you know, I've never been to a wedding on a Monday night. And I've been to th- what feels like thousands of weddings. You're a popular person. <laughs> I am a popular person, Kevin. No, when you have a wedding on a Monday night, the message it sends to me is either you cheap or B, you think it's a better day for news coverage, right? Because on Saturday, people are, you know, doing other things like, I don't know, going to weddings, right? So here they are, uh, uh, Monday, December 20th, and Marla and Donald invite, how many people do you think were at this wedding? How many people are at a, an, how many people were at your wedding? I don't remember. You don't remember. Well, Donald and Marla had 1,100 guests at the plaza for this event, right? As well as hordes of media, fans, and spectators who posted up outside the plaza who didn't attend this blessed event, you may be asking yourself. Well, Trump's young children with his first wife, Ivana, Donald Jr., Ivanka, and the other one, released a statement through their publicist explaining that they would not attend their father's second wedding, opting instead to remain in Aspen with their mother. No big deal. They'll still have the opportunity to attend round three. But Back to who did attend the wedding. Stars of entertainment, business, and politics streamed into Donald Trump's Plaza Hotel tonight. They came in big hair, bleached hair, and lots of fur. People like Don King, Howard Stern, New York Mayor David Dinkins, Tawny Katane, and Susan Lucci. O.J. Simpson, Joy Behar, Howard Stern, Rosie O'Donnell weren't the only New York City celebs and hoi polloi to attend Marla and Trump's wedding. No, one other luminary showed up. 
And that was, in fact, New York County District Attorney Robert M. Morgenthau. Let me just jump here, right? Look, yes, Robert M. Morgenthau did go to the Trump wedding. That happened. I had nothing to do with that. I was not asked whether or not he should go. I didn't know that he was going. I just knew that it was reported that he was there. I thought he was just this buttoned-up, straight-laced guy who would never do such a thing to, to, to pick up the phone and call Donald Trump or call you, but he headed out to the wedding at the plaza. Mr. Morgan, that was a political official. Mr. Trump was a political official at the time, not in politics, but, you know, definitely a donor to people in politics. And, you know, it was the event of the year, right? So, I mean, Mr. Morgan, that was invited. He went. That is a true statement. That's what happened. It did not affect this case. But the burning question that everybody wants to know is, did you go? (laughs) No, I did not go to the wedding. I was not invited nor did I want to be invited. Oh, come on. You were mad. Trisha, I had to prepare for the case of the century. You're telling me you didn't want to go eat some overcooked filet mignon and tuna tartare on Donald Trump at the plaza and rub elbows with Susan Lucci was there. Listen, I'm a big Susan Lucci fan, but I would I had no desire. So you pressed your tux. You no, had it I, hanging in the DA's Trisha, office. I didn't have no Waiting t- to see if at the very last second, Marla Maples was going to call and invite you. I mean, you know me. I don't have a tux now. I didn't have a tux then. I mean, geez, if I ever have to go get some hardware, I'm going to have to rent a tux. But, you know, look, I understand the implications. Mr. Morgan, that was at the wedding. Therefore, he must be controlling the case. All I can do is tell you and the listeners— Mr. Morgan never spoke to me about this case. Mr. Trump never spoke to me about this case. Marla and Donald got married. I'm very happy for them. Wish them well. I was at work. You know, we had to get ready. The judge put the case down for January 4th, which means Kevin and his squad are working through the holiday. January 4th is a good day to put on the calendar for a trial if you're going to have press because you got the whole courthouse to yourself. You got the whole Megillah. Nobody. No competition. There's no competition. It's going to be your case. He wanted to move the case forward. It it, it had been pending for quite some time. It was ready to go. Um, It was, as we call it, ripe. But look, that put me in a bad position, right? Yeah. What did that mean? That means that during the Christmas holidays, rather than, you know, being wherever I used to go back then, probably nowhere, because I was making $34,000 a year, <laughs> um, you know, I had to basically stay in New York City, going to work every day to 100 Center Street to my little tiny office. With your with your rubbers on your shoes? No, nah, I never wore that shit. <laughs> nah, that's, that's, nah. Old that's not school. Me. That's not me, nah. Rubbers are like a shoe condom that went around men's dress shoes so that they would not get damaged from salt because they would salt where the snow went and so it would keep your your shoe looking sharp. I mean, the one good thing about going to work at that time is you didn't have to wear a suit, right? Because mm-hmm. it was no one, was no one was in the building. I, uh, Jeanette and Higgins, we were actually working to try to get the case ready for hearings and trial on January 4th. And let's get down to Brias TX, mm-hmm. okay? For Jeanette and Higgins... Are getting ready for trial over here. Like, this is no offense to either one of them, but with their Fifth Avenue beat, they were more used to flirting with rich housewives and giving tourists directions. This was this was a big case for both Jeanette and Higgins, yes. Yeah. I mean, but look, this was a very unusual case for everybody, right? Okay. I was a little bit shook by this case, right? I mean, my entire career was all about trying to do the best work I could, case after case after case, and moving up the line. Never in my wildest dreams did I think I was going to have a shoe case, a case that revolved around a bunch of shoes, right? And, you know, no matter how hard I tried to say, well, it's just another case. Don't worry about it. It was in the newspaper every day. Right. So I couldn't forget about it. You know, and Trisha, too, I had a hundred other pending felonies. Right. It wasn't the only case I had, but it took up all the time. Right. That was the job and that's what I was doing. And you have to win at all costs. I don't think you want to go down uh, in the annals of, of criminal justice history as the person who lost the shoe case, right? Right. So you're working hard. Just to, just, just the three of you guys or is Lynch popping in and out? Lynch will pop in and out sometimes. What they had to do at that point is one of the more important things we had to do was marshal the evidence. Okay. Right? Let's describe that for 
the listeners. What what entails in this case, in the Chuck Jones case, marshalling the evidence? Well, we had a bunch of physical evidence, right? We had shoes, right? Oh, about over 30 pairs of shoes. We had uh, Marla's underwear. 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 We also had her- um, Lingerie. All this stuff was in different bags, Stockings, right? from sure. I, I hear there tell. Was, there were stockings. Right. Look, <laughs> Nylons. The three of us, the three, the three boys, um, were in charge of going through all this stuff. And so since we had to prove that all of the replacement value of the shoes was over $1,000 in order to prove the felony, um, criminal possession of stolen property, um, we had to take the shoes and have them individually analyzed by an expert. Okay. In order to do that, we had to take the shoes, because the shoes, you got to remember, the shoes have been sitting around for over a year now when police- property, right? And so they're in a big, giant, black garbage bag. Okay. Right? That's the way they were. They brought them uh, from the property clerk's office to my office. And on this particular day, they our job was to match those shoes and then individually bag them and seal them and have them ready to be analyzed by an expert. Right. And in order to do that, we they brought the shoes in. I remember Jeanette and Higgins, they showed up and they dumped the shoes on the floor of my office. Right. Because we had to match them. Right. right? Um, and look, to be honest, I gave the order for them to do that right. because I didn't want to touch these shoes, right? They're dirty, stinky shoes, right? I mean, that's not stinky. my gig. So they started doing that. And, you know, they were goofing around. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, they're funny guys. Great, great dudes. And they're goofing around, and I'm trying to do my work. Then all of a sudden, I hear Higgins say, yo, G, what do you think this is? <laughs> I didn't know what they were talking about. And then I heard Jeanetta laugh. And Jeanetta had this beautiful, infectious laugh, right? It was like, <laughs> very high level. He goes, hey, Kevin, take a look. So I look over to them. And there's like Jeanetta and, and, and they're, Higgins. they're still laughing? Like They're laughing. They think it's funny. I get up. I walk over to them. And they, sh- they there was a spiked heel, right? Okay. Um, it was blue, if I remember. Okay. And they were like, what do you think this is? And they point inside the shoe on the sole. And when I looked inside, I saw a stain. And I was like, what are you guys goofing about? I was like, a sweat stain? Oh, like, gosh. she got sweaty feet? Is that what Here you're saying? We go. And they were like, nope. I'm like, and then it kind of came to me. I was like, oh, no. Really? And they're like, yep. And I'm like, all right, what you guys got to do is got to go through all the shoes now individually and see if there's any more stains in the shoes. Right. So they did that as I sat there trying to figure did, out. So they start ripping open the bags. and They did that. And when they were done doing that, there was like four or five other shoes that had a- Similarly s- stained. Yes, similarly stained. And so what I did was I ordered them to take those shoes, bag them individually, and take those shoes to serology. Where is that located? It's in Lower Manhattan, um, on the east side, and it's it's within the uh, the coroner's office. There's a there's a lab there where they would test drugs and test you know shoes, fluid, and well, in this case, shoes. Yeah. Um, and I said, take them there and and find out from serology what what is the source of the stain. Yes. Um, and they uh, they did as they were asked. Put on the rubbers. I don't think they wore rubbers. But yes, they did. Okay, whatever. They brought those <laughs> shoes to serology. Okay. And I was then left alone in my office. I'm picturing you're sitting there, leaned back, thinking about the day's events. I'm thinking about how do I make lemonade out of lemons is what I'm thinking. What do you do? I have an idea. Okay. And my idea is I'm going to call my friend Mike Sheehan. Mike Sheehan was... Uh, back in the day, when I started in the Manhattan DA's office in 1989, Mike Sheehan was the number one homicide detective in the city. Wow. How did he get that accolade? Well, I mean, he did Robert Chambers, right? Okay. Um, he did a bunch of trials um, back in the day. Um, someone I met the first day I was there, he actually sought me out on the first day in the office in uh, August of 89. And he uh, he sought me out and said, I know your father. Mm -hmm. He told me that I should look out for you. Okay. And I will say that from 1989 until he died um, recently, he was the second father to me. He could not have been a more loyal um, person and taught me a lot about the job, taught me a lot about what it means to be a man, and taught me a lot about what loyalty is all about. And at the time, in 1993, going into 1994, Mike had left the, the, the police York department. Police department. Mm-hmm. And he had taken a job with Fox 5 News, which okay. was the Fox affiliate in New York City. And he was the crime reporter. Okay. So in addition to being this amazing, amazing mentor. homicide detective oh. and mentor, 
He then became a reporter, right? Be- on air reporter, so not not the not the papers. He was on air and on Fox. On air reporter, Mike Sheen. Fox We're going to kick it over for the crime beat to exactly. Mike Sheen, right? Mike. Of course, he had incredible connections within the police department, so right. he always knew, right? And he would always say to me, "Kid, hey kid," he used to call me "kid." Hey kid, you ever get anything good? Let me know. Let me know. Right. And so, as I sat at my desk, I knew that I had to call Mike Sheen. But I also knew that I couldn't do it from the DA's office phone, right? So I left. Put on your rubbers. No, I did not put on rubbers. <laughs> I went home and I got home to my apartment, 15 Stuyvesant Oval, and I called Mike. And it was probably around eight o'clock. And okay. their news, they used to have a 10 o'clock news. Right. And so Live I, at 10. Right. So I called Mike up and uh, he's like, hey, kid, how are you? Call me, kid. And I go, I'm great, Mike. I think I got something for you. He goes, what do you got? I go, it's Chuck Jones related. He goes, yeah. I go, it's good though. He goes, what is it? I tell him, I said, we just sent three of the shoes to serology. He goes, what do you mean? I said, Mala Maple shoes, we were marshalling the evidence today, and we found certain stains in the shoes. He goes, you tell me there's spunk in the shoes? <laughs> I go, yeah, I think there's spunk in the shoes. He goes, please tell me nobody else got this. I go, Mike, nobody else got it, but it's you got to protect me. He goes, I love you, kid. And he hangs up the phone. 10 o'clock comes, I turn on 10 o'clock news. With your TV dinner. I have my TV dinner. Who the hell knows what I was eating back then? All by myself. I was very lonely. (laughs) I'm watching the 10 o'clock news. Anchor says, we're going to go live to Mike Sheehan, who has breaking news on the Chuck Jones case. And they go to Mike and he's standing in front of serology. Oh, he went to serology? Took a unit out? He went out to serology. He's standing live in front of the the serology building building with his trench coat on and his suit. (laughs) That's what I wanted him to be in a trench coat. And his microphone. And he says, I've learned exclusively from sources close to the investigation that three of the shoes that Chuck Jones has stolen have been transported here to serology. They will now be tested for semen. The 109 Precinct in Flushing, Queens, Mike Sheehan, Fox 5 News. That moment is when I knew that all was right with the world. Now, let me ask you a question. Was that the first time that... I mean, now you're a leak, Kev. You are a leak. You are a leak in this case. Was that the first time you had ever leaked as a district attorney? I'm not going to comment on that. <laughs> was that the last time not gonna that you leaked? That. All I can tell you is this is the first time that I'm saying publicly that I leaked. Did you guys ever find out what the stains actually were? Yes, we did. Were you able to tie them to Chuck Jones or to Donald Trump? Next time on Healed. We are going to test the splotch to see if that is in fact Chuck Jones semen. How could she not know it was Chuck? I mean, who else was it going to be? Have I gotten myself in a situation with someone who's a nut? And the first witness called in the people of the state of New York versus Charles Jones is Marla Maples Trump. He thought if I could confuse her, if I can get her angry, that she will explode on the stand. She never thought, oh, you know what? Maybe I should pay Chuck for all of the work that he's done. If the jury believed him, then certainly Chuck would have been acquitted. This is when the fireworks really start. He's making her stand up from the witness stand and hold her panties in the air. She's just horrified. He blows a huge hole in Marla's testimony. Behind me, I hear the press clickety-clack and everybody's writing shit and I'm like, oh my God, what have I done? This is gonna be the front page of the New York Post tomorrow. Drunk DA? Healed is a Just Kill production produced by Tandis Karami, Luke Groneman, and Tyler Patrick Jones. It's written by Kevin J. Hines and myself, Trisha LaFoch. The Healed theme music was written by Chad Crouch. Additional shout out to Mike Schaffernack, our editing wizard, our sound engineer, Kyle Raps, and to Max Alcabez, owner of Pink Cloud Studios in Los Angeles, where we record these shoescapades. Follow us on our Instagram at healed.podcast or check us out on our website, healedpodcast.com. Tune in next week for another exciting episode of Healed.